That afternoon, while Scott was working and Mark was busy with errands, Gene and I went to the El Cap Meadow just to stare at it and to see how many climbers were on the wall. Incredibly, we could only see one solo climber high on the nose. It was a great feeling to know we would be finally be climbing on El Capitan the following day. The first time I saw El Cap, it seemed so big, so improbable to want to climb it. Now finally, after honing our skills for years and years, it was time to try to climb the big stone. I was full of confidence and motivation. My recent climb of the painted wall in the Black Canyon had me convinced I could now climb El Cap. After all, if I had the skills to get up the biggest cliff in Colorado, I could get up the tallest one in California. Right? Welcome to episode 15 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we are in the final chapters of American Climber, my 2016 memoir. Merging our book on tape vision with the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art. Sticker Art, where every sticker tells a story. You can find those guys at stickerart.com and you can type in the coupon code DIRTBAG for 20% off at checkout. And those guys are proudly based here in Durango, Colorado, where we are as well. You can support the Climbing Zine and this podcast by checking out the links in our show notes. You can also check out the link in our bio on our Instagram page and access our store there to get merch, stickers, books, and zines. All right. For my climbers, for my dirt bags, and for the people that want to be dirt bag climbers, this is episode 15 of the Dirt Bag State of Mind podcast. I was full of worry in the weeks leading up to the departure. I was worried about money. I was worried about the future. I was worried about the upcoming road trip and worried how long it would be before I could meet another woman that could live up to the standards that Lynn had set. I was a mess. The minute I set off on the road, I could only pick one worry and stick with it. And that worry was getting the Freedom Mobile to the next destination. I was a road warrior again. The Freedom Mobile was running, but barely. Seven out of the nine dashboard lights were on, and the headlights only work when I pop the hood and fiddle with some wires. And we were going to take this thing to Las Vegas and then to California and then back to Colorado? Sure enough, the Freedom Mobile made it to Telluride, and we liquidated everything that we didn't need for the trip into Gene's garage. Gene was dealing with a breakup as well. We both wanted to just see the open road and have some warm rocks to climb. We wasted no time, and the next morning, we were Vegas-bound. If you could picture this old car, worth only a few hundred bucks, rolling into Las Vegas at night, in film, it would have been something to see. The land of sin and money, America's excess, spilling over into this sad desert city, all lit up, the Freedom Mobile providing the perfect contrast, the truth of America, all beat up, but somehow still running, somehow still on the road. It was nothing but sunshine in Las Vegas, and we climbed for a few days until we headed down south, back to Joshua Tree, and then up to Yosemite. In J-Tree, I got a call on my cell from an elderly couple in Durango, looking for someone to look out after their house for the winter. They'd found an ad I'd placed in the newspaper that I was going to write for. It was perfect. One less thing for my worried mind to be preoccupied with. At least I had a start, a new foundation. 
When you're a climber out on the road, you just never know when you might stay on the road forever. The Freedom Mobile still had the check engine light on, but continued down the highway like a champ, so we just kept rolling. It was a funky little highway out of Joshua Tree that led us to the interstate. One of those interstates where you can see the smog from miles away and sense the gloom of it all. It was this sort of highway that carried us to Yosemite, the big wall mecca of the world. Gene and I bought two weeks of groceries, stuffing the Freedom Mobile to the brim with the type of supplies that one needs for big wall climbing. Canned food, coffee, granola bars, and gas for the stove. We rolled into the park late, haggard from the road, and headed straight to the greenhouse. As we got out of the Freedom Mobile, we noticed the air was unexpectedly warm in November for Yosemite. The greenhouse was more than welcoming, as always. In the living room were Scott and his roommate Ned and two of their friends, fellow climbers, destined to be our friends as well. We cracked beers and toasted the possibility of good climbing weather in November. Gene and I were set on climbing El Capitan. Neither one of us had climbed it before, and we thought this was the trip. In the morning, over coffee, we decided that we would start up the wall the following day. Driving into the valley that morning, we met up with Mark. He was finishing up his season as the valley was slowing down with winter on its way. We mentioned that we were going to start up the nose on El Cap the following day, and he asked if he could join. Mark has made several trips up the captain, and he is a fun and energetic guy, and we didn't mind at all if he joined. Immediately, though, we noticed that Mark's demeanor was erratic. First he could go, and then he couldn't. He was busy moving out of his place for the season, and he seemed to have a lot on his mind. To make matters more complicated, Scott called and said he wanted to join as well. That afternoon, Gene and I went to the El Cap Meadow just to stare at it and to see how many climbers were on the 3,000-foot wall. Incredibly, we could only see one solo climber, high on the nose. It was a great feeling to know that we would finally be climbing El Capitan the following day. The first time I saw El Capitan, it seemed so big, so improbable to want to climb it. Now, finally, after honing our skills for years and years, it was time to try to climb the big stone. I was full of confidence and motivation. My recent climb of the painted wall in the Black Canyon had me convinced I could now climb El Cap. After all, if I had the skills to get up the biggest cliff in Colorado, I could get up the tallest one in California too, right? Gene, maybe after we climb the nose, we could do the Salate wall. It would be really cool to climb it twice, don't you think? I said. Gene mumbled something at the ridiculous ambition of my comment, and we continued to tilt our necks back, looking up at over 3,000 feet of sheer golden granite. We went back to the greenhouse to pack up for the climb, and it was hectic. I wasn't happy that we were all of a sudden a team of four, but plans kept changing throughout the day, so I knew there was a chance that something would happen and things would change again. We laid out our tarp and stuffed two big haul bags, nearly the size of a man and almost the weight of one. Mark continued to be frantic. So if there's a chance I have to work, if so, I'll just rappel off with an extra rope. Mark's demeanor didn't get me psyched, and I made subtle hints about how a team of four might be too much. We were hungry for the big wall experience. Mark was clearly low on excitement for it. He'd been living and working in Yosemite for almost six months and didn't have the fire. I was beginning to think he just wanted to hang out with us, and this was how he was going about it. Mark is one of my best friends. No, Mark is like a brother that shares the love of climbing. So I just put my head down and continued to pack up. Scott finally showed up and confirmed that he was in. He laid out his gear on the gigantic tarps and started stuffing it in. By the time it was dark and we had moved inside the greenhouse, we were still packing. In addition to this, we were drinking and smoking, 
and getting weary. Scott's roommate, Ned, a big wall veteran himself, just looked at us and could sense the madness and confusion. Finally, near the end of the packing, Mark quickly reached into the hall bag to find something and accidentally pulled out a carabiner, which smacked him in the face, knocking out half of one of his front teeth. Suddenly, it was quiet. Scott whispered what we were all thinking, that Mark would not be coming up the wall. He would have to visit a dentist in the morning. He was bummed, but stayed in good spirits. Mark started removing his gear from the bags. Late in the night, I crawled into my tent for a few hours of sleep. I set my alarm for 4.20. The alarm went off, and I felt tired. Like a true fiend, I headed straight to get the coffee going. The coffee ignited the fire of my determination, and I felt motivated. Gene made some grub, and we packed two large haul bags into the Freedom Mobile. It was still dark as we drove from Peresta to the valley. We parked the Freedom Mobile by El Cap and made the short approach to the wall. After the coffee wore off, I felt tired, and the task of humping our gear to El Cap while short was draining. I looked at Gene with the haul bag on his back, and he was sweating heavily. Scott, on the other hand, seemed to be in his element, accepting all these struggles as part of the game. Since Scott was the aid climbing expert, it was agreed that he would lead the first block of pitches. He started up, moving quickly, and then commenced the hauling of the bags. They didn't budge in the slab, and Gene had to push them to get started. At that moment, Gene and I knew we were in for some serious hard work, and we looked at each other. You know, I said, we probably should have done a practice aid wall before jumping on El Cap. He looked back and agreed, with the ocean of golden granite towering above us. Finally, Gene had to Jumar up to assist Scott with the hauling, as they both grunted and struggled to move the haul bag inches. I Jumar'd up as well and thought about the time that had passed since we started the pitch. When we reached the second pitch, well over two hours had passed, and I thought about how daring, expert big wall Yosemite climbers had speed climbed the entire route in the time that it took us to just get up the first 200 feet. The turmoil got worse as the morning progressed and turned into the afternoon. There were traversing pitches where I had to lower out the haul bags so Scott and Gene could haul. I'd never done this, and the weight of the bags pulled terrifyingly on me. I was to the point of cursing and complaining already. But a party was behind us, and a woman was leading up behind me, and there was no way I was about to have a meltdown in front of another climber, just a few pitches up, El Cap. The woman arrived at my belay as I struggled with the haul bags, and she clipped into the same bolted anchor I was using. She and her partner were only doing the initial pitches of the climb, and so were equipped with a light free climbing rack and nothing else. The same style the speed climbing aces used to run up the wall in a few hours. They looked so free and happy. I was having problems unweighting the haul bag from the anchor, and the woman helped me get the weight of the bags off the anchor by pushing on them so they could be lowered out with the remaining rope. How far are you guys going today? She asked. Uh, I think we need to go back to the drawing board, maybe go do a shorter aid route, I replied. I was already coming to the realization that Gene and I had a lot to learn about big wall aid climbing before trying to climb El Cap. At this ledge, I thought about style and hated that we had so much weight and it was such a task to haul all the supplies up. I thought about how we had come all the way to Yosemite just to get worked like this because, after all, if we did not realize at the time, we were doing exactly what we came to do. To learn to big wall aid climb is to suffer and then, after that suffering, the knowledge is attained and the rewards are found. Finally, Scott and Jean began the hauling and I started up the pitch. It was a traversing session where I had to lower myself out with the extra rope that was dangled off my harness. 
I'd never done this before, and I was terrified. Scott, just 40 feet above, was close enough that he could offer a tutorial on how it was done. Finally, I lowered myself out, and like many climbing procedures, it was not as scary as the initial perception in my head. We were lucky to have Scott on board, and if Mark was there, he could have provided beneficial lessons as well. We had a lot to learn. When I arrived at the belay with Scott and Jean, we had an enormous eruption of laughter at our struggle. I couldn't recall the last time I laughed that hard, and I felt a weight off my shoulders as I laughed at the point of tears. We were at a spot where we could rappel down directly in a short amount of time, so we debated what we were going to do. Scott was game to continue, and I think Jean could have gone either way. I made my mind up at the last belay that I wanted to hone my skills some more before climbing the captain. I expressed this to my friends, and they obliged to retreat. Sometimes admitting failure can be a blow to a climber's ego, but at that point, I had no ego to blow. I imagined I was the worst aid climber in Yosemite, and I didn't give a damn, which in itself was a relief and a revelation. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, right? Retreat was not as easy as we imagined. At that point, there were now five climbers on this belay ledge, us and the other party. There wasn't any tension, though, which can often happen at a crowded belay ledge especially with failure in the air. We were sitting there trying to figure out how to rappel off with the mighty haul bags, the weight of a man. The woman's partner, a big wall veteran himself, originally from Alabama, who had already been up El Cap and all the other walls in Yosemite, advised us to simply lower the bags off as one of us rappelled down and clipped the bag into the next anchor. He was right. It was the most efficient way to do it rather than having one of us rappel with the bags attached to us and fumble down the wall. We talked to him more as Scott rappelled down. Oh, you guys are trying to do El Cap for your first big wall in Yosemite? That's ambitious. I did five or six practice walls before getting on this thing. I almost died of heat stroke on Leaning Tower, trying to climb it in the summer. Man, we were so stupid. He went on with his stories. Big wall climbers all had these stories. And it's proof in my mind that every big wall climber suffers for every bit of glory attained. I was feeling glorious and relieved when we finally touched back on the ground. It wasn't the goal. The goal was to top out on El Cap three or so days later, but I'd learned some valuable lessons. Gina and I talked it over. We would take a rest day, repack, and then attempt a shorter big wall route. The weather was still sunny and warm, blue skies and all, a blessing for early November. Mark wanted to do some sport climbing, so we met up with him in the early afternoon the next day. Sport climbing is somewhat of a rarity for Yosemite, which is traditional in its nature. We hiked up to some obscure wall for a couple of routes. The trees were changing, the gigantic Yosemite Falls still had some water flowing down it, and we even had a bear leisurely stroll by the forest below us. Mark was loving it. He was over the big walls and just wanted to bask in the simple play that is sport climbing. He made us laugh as he jokingly used his new knee pads that he was going to use for overhanging sport climbing in Mexico where he lives and works in the winter with his girlfriend. That night, we packed up the haul bag, one haul bag, because it was going to be just me and Jean for the climb. We decided to go for the all-time beginner's classic, the south face of the Washington Column, a thousand-plus foot wall of mostly straightforward aid climbing. Jean and I had failed previously on this route, so there was a prospect of redemption, something that always sweetens the deal when figuring out what to climb. I'd also done the classic free climb Astro Man on the same wall with Mark the previous summer in nine hours, which gave me the confidence that we could get up the south face in two days, even with all the extra baggage for living and sleeping on the wall. There was an air of calm as we packed up the bag in the greenhouse. 
Ned and Scott watched us pack. Scott talked of plans to do a climb nearby to our southern man with another climbing partner on our second day, so it would be a party on the wall. We continued to pack and organize late in the night, and Ned stayed up with us, saying he wanted to just be part of the excitement. He commented that he could sense that we were going to be successful this time, and I took that to be a blessing and a good sign. We woke up around 4.20 again, completed the ritual of drinking coffee, eating, and pooping, and made our way into the valley in the dark. Funny thing about climbing in Washington Column, one parks his car in the parking lot for the upscale Awani Hotel. It's an atrocity, if you ask me, that there's a luxurious hotel in a national park dedicated to preserving a natural environment. I say tear it down and build more campsites and housing for the park employees, who for the most part live in small, uncomfortable quarters. Regardless, it felt strange as we parked the Freedom Mobile next to all the nice BMWs, Hummers, and other vehicles for rich folks, pulled out the haul bag out of our car, and started hiking up to the wall. As we were getting our gear together, we noticed another duo doing exactly what we were doing. Since the South Face is so popular, we figured they were getting on the same route as we were. We weren't exactly psyched in the prospect of getting stuck behind another party, so we tried to get our act together and started hiking to the wall. It led us astray at one point, hiking past the trailhead that heads up to the Washington Column, but luckily we got to the base of the route before the other party. Again, there was a possibility for tension as they arrived just five minutes after we had. The first thing they said was, I hope you boys are ready to party on the ledge. We got some whiskey. Both Gene and I were relieved they weren't going to be impatient with us. The south face of Washington Column is a genius route to get acclimated on the rituals and mechanics of big wall climbing, provided it's not a traffic jam. One can climb the wall with only hauling the bag for three pitches up to the dinner ledge, leaving them there after spending the night on the ledge, climbing to the top, and then rappelling back to the bag, much lighter after two days, and then finally rappelling with the bag back to the ground. We fought and struggled with the haul bag for three pitches, maybe 400 feet or so, cursing and sweating until we finally reached dinner ledge, a urine-smelling but glorious place to be. We basically collapsed on the ledge for a while, After resting a bit, we began laying out our sleeping territory and taking our stove and food out of the hall bag. Our new friends, Ben and Patrick, progressed below us at about the same pace we did, and we exchanged friendly remarks to one another as they came up to the ledge. They were able to find their own little perch to sleep on, just five feet higher and 30 or so feet adjacent to our own little camp. Once camp was set up and our bodies were energized, we did another couple pitches. I led as we were doing the climbing in blocks, and on the second pitch, I started to feel comfortable in the environment. I'd been here before. Half Dome, to the east, stood proudly, looking over us and seemed to give us its blessing. The aid climbing movement, stepping in our slings, much different than the progress of free climbing, finally felt right and efficient. On the last pitch of the day, I was truly feeling the flow on the golden granite wall. I moved quickly, and Gene made positive remarks about my progress, which made me feel good. There was a small, easy pendulum, which I completed, gently swinging over, and I felt like a child lost in play. I clipped into the anchors and set up the ropes for Gene, while Half Dome sat there in the shade, trickling waterfalls loomed in the distance, and the birds circled us. When Gene reached my point of pendulum, he would have to do a lower out, as I had to do the previous day on El Cap. I walked him through it, trying to remember how it went. He looked exactly how I felt two days ago, fumbling with the ropes, convincing himself that he was doing the right thing. 
Are you sure this is how it goes? He said. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it is. He finally figured it out. We were rappelled down to the ledge, leaving the rope fixed so we could jumar up it in the morning. We got comfortable on our bivy ledge, and it was the, one of the most glorious evenings of my life. I'd stayed at this ledge once previously in a failed attempt at the route, and that night, I never felt calm or at ease. For whatever reason, this night was different. We stared at Hap Dome as it finally got some of the last rays of the sun for the day. Gray granite with black water streaks and hints of orange. I had the feeling I was exactly where I was supposed to be. Gene and I were proud and we were on the heels of success. All we had above us was climbing, and we didn't have to worry about the pains of hauling. The simple Indian food out of a tasty bite package seemed like the best meal of my life. The one and a half beers we had, we savored in small sips. We lost half of one beer that the can had punctured, slowly leaking out into the hall bag. We had two small speakers and a tiny iPod, and the music gently serenaded us with the high vibes and spirits of the vertical world. I thought of the climber who was killed on this very same ledge by rockfall dislodged from another party high up on the route on pitches not recommended to do by the guy because another party is almost always below you on this route. I thought of his partner and his family and how the incident affected them. Across from us, on the 2,000-plus-foot granite slab named Glacier Point, a young climber named Peter Turbush from Gunnison had been killed by rockfall in that crazy year of 1999. So much reminder of death, yet we felt safe, peaceful, content, alive, and so psyched. I wondered what happened to their spirits, where they existed now. I thought of my last bivy, unplanned and without sleeping gear on the painted wall in the Black Canyon. A sleepless night, huddled next to my companion, shivering, just waiting for that endless night to be over. Perhaps that was why this bivy felt so good, so right, remembering the one that was full of dread and cold. I thought of Leighton Core, the prolific climber of the 1960s who established this route, as well as the Black Canyon route I suffered on in the unplanned bivy. I read in the guidebook that he and his partner, Chris Fredericks, didn't get to stay on this ledge, but rather pressed on for higher terrain, eventually spending a sleepless night hanging in slings. I thought about how the drive and passion for climbing can sometimes make one overlook the gentler, simpler fruits of life. Most of all, I thought about how I was lucky to be up there with Gene. We were in sync and comfortable with one another in the vertical. He wanted this as badly as I did, and we were getting along famously. The boys came down and partied with us as they promised. They were high on the vertical world too, and we made obscene jokes, as guys do without women around, and laughed as if we were old friends. Finally, it was time to sleep, and we drifted off with the cosmos. I was warm in my sleeping bag and could only fall asleep after I tied in with the rope as Gene slept unroped on the huge ledge. We woke up with the rays of the sun, forced down oatmeal and coffee, and pooped as one poops on a wall, first into a plastic bag and then stuffing the bag into a three-foot-long PVC pipe called a poop tube. Immediately, Gene started jumaring up the rope we'd fixed the previous afternoon, and I followed right up after him. Finally, I had a flow to my Jumar techniques and really felt good about how efficiently I was moving. We wanted to move quickly that day, both because success would be a big boost for our spirits and because we wanted our new friends to be successful as well. As Gene started up a small, thin crack, we heard voices below, and it was Scott with one of his friends climbing up to the dinner ledge. 
They were planning on a day climb of Southern Man, a harder route within spitting distance of ours. It was incredible to watch their pace as I split my time keeping an eye on Gene as he led and peering down as they raced up the wall. Gene fiddled with nuts and cams, sliding them into the crack, and Scott did the same. They quickly reached our level, close enough that we could talk, and I picked Scott's brain about aid climbing questions. We made obscene jokes and shouted loudly and just generally hooted and hollered, buzzed on life in the vertical. Clouds began forming, some grayness looming in the background, but no thunder or lightning. We had a good chance to get up this wall. Scott's big wall climbing technique and demeanor is unique. He was talking to himself, singing a version of some reggae song and yelling at his partner the whole time, inching tiny stoppers and cam hooks into the crack. Oh God, this is sketchy, he said, all while having a smile on his face. A master at work. Gene kept leading as I followed and cleaned. Our new friends below were progressing nicely, and all was well on the wall. Once they reached the belay where I was, it would usually be time for me to set off and clean the pitch. Finally, we finished the aid climbing section, and it was time for a few pitches of free climbing, our element. We ditched a bag with the aid climbing equipment at the belay, and I set off leading. The clouds were getting worse, and the wind was picking up. I tried to climb as fast as possible, while trying not to climb too fast and make a silly mistake, like a fall that would slow us down. As I climbed, I felt so determined to get up this thing. This climb would define our trip. At the second to last pitch, there was a point where there was an intimidating off-width squeezed chimney above. The one latent core had surely led on the first ascent. To the right was another option, an ugly, awkward seam that had been hammered with pitons. In our home multi-pitch area, the Black Canyon, that would have been unacceptable to hammer an easy option just 15 out from the true proud line. But every area has its own practices, and I opted for the quicker mode of climbing, the easier, quicker seam. I did make a mental note to return to take the prouder line. A great thing about climbing, those rocks will always be there. Gene led the pitch with a funky fun move over a small roof, and I followed up. We'd climbed the route. We shook hands, and it was anticlimactic, of course. Clouds and winds increased, and we knew we had to get off this damn thing, so we rigged a rappel. The wind blew our ropes all over the place, and repelling was a mixture of prayers and experience, just hoping the ropes wouldn't get stuck, which could cause all types of problems. We repelled past Ben as he was leading up. He was struggling in a chimney section, and I remembered how the night before he said he hated chimneys. I kept repelling and noticed an anchor just to the right of where Patrick was belaying from, but didn't give it much of a thought to its purpose and clipped bolts at Patrick's belay. Gene did the same, and we pulled the rope, hoping not to hit Ben. It was a bit of a clusterfuck. As we pulled the rope, it got stuck, so we tugged some more, and indeed, it was not going anywhere. We frantically yelled to Ben, Can you see where it's stuck? Uh, let me see what I can do, Ben said. Oh, shit, I can't move. Our rope had wrapped around him and his gear, and he could not climb up. He had to rappel down. We felt so bad. Patrick had finally lost most of his patience with us, but was still polite. What a guy. They wanted redemption and success on the wall, just as we did. Ben finally fixed everything, and as he did so, I realized the adjacent set of anchors were for repelling and set where they were so that the rope would not get stuck in the chimney above. Another lesson learned, but at the expense of our new friends. Damn. I wondered if we would have had the same patience with them if the roles were reversed. 
We kept rappelling, and the winds kept getting more and more intense as we came down. When we tossed the ropes, they went sideways, horizontal, and we just prayed that they wouldn't get stuck. Luckily, they didn't. We finally reached the dinner ledge, gathering up our gear, and quickly headed down three more rappels, finally reaching the ground. Success. But I couldn't help but feel bad as we looked up at the wall and Ben and Patrick were rappelling down. We could see their headlamps. Not only did they not reach the top, they also had to rappel in the wind in the dark. We made it back to the Freedom Mobile, never hard to find in a parking lot, especially one with nice shiny cars. We beelined it straight to the grocery store and bought beers to celebrate, meeting Scott back at the greenhouse for a humble dinner of pasta. It stormed that night, and I slept in my tent to the sound of rain. Higher up, it had snowed. As we were making breakfast, we heard a knock on the door. It was a Scottish couple. They'd had an epic journey that night before, trying to drive into the valley. They were following the GPS from their rental vehicle that led them down a seldom-used 4x4 road. By the time they realized they needed to turn around, they were well down the road, and then they got stuck and had to spend the night sleeping in their vehicle. I wasn't surprised. In Foresta, it seems like a car a day ends up in the area. The GPS programming is routed wrong for the region. We were happy to help and warm them up with eggs and coffee, and we sat by the fireplace. Eventually, we drove them into the valley in the Freedom Mobile, dropping them off at a mechanic. I had anticipated possibly needing the help of others during this trip, so we were more than happy to lend a helping hand, building up karma points in case we needed some help at some point. This was not the first time we'd helped others in the trip. We'd already jumped two vehicles with the jumper cables Gene had wisely thrown into the back. For some reason, people knew they could reach out to the Freedom Mobile for help. The rest of our time in Yosemite was awash. It just kept raining and snowing, a sign to move on. Plus time was winding down. I had to start my new house-sitting gig in my new town. We spent a couple days chilling at the greenhouse, drinking beer like we'd be forever young. It did clear up the day we were leaving, and we were able to get a couple last pitches at the Cookie Cliff, some of the best shorter crack climbs in Yosemite. I led the last pitch for Yosemite. It was a nice finger and hand crack and a dihedral that made me want to linger and climb more. But we had to go. Our spirits were high after that pitch, and we hopped into the Freedom Mobile to leave Yosemite, grateful for our experiences and hungry for more. Somehow, some way, we made it back to Colorado. I crashed with Gene and Telluride, and then made the two-hour drive to Durango. Upon arrival at my new house, the woman who owned the place said it looked like the Freedom Mobile had been through a war. All right, that is episode 15 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. Rereading that just made me realize how important that trip was at my at the juncture in my life at that point. And, uh, you know, losing a job, losing a relationship, the economy was going to shit, um, which when I started reading this, uh, when I picked this book out to start the podcast, it was before our economy had gone to shit here um, with the coronavirus. But it just made me realize how important it was to do something positive and you know, the Freedom Mobile was this car that had hundreds of thousands of miles on it. And it was still worth it to take that chance. And somehow it, it completed that journey and it actually went on for many, many more miles until I eventually sold it. And uh, when I did sell it, 
it was kind of this mysterious ending because I sold it to my mechanic, my friend Andrew, and then he resold it to someone who said they were going to paint it and then they were going to try to resell it. And I think that person may have been on drugs, but because it was an old ass car <laughs> and they were going to try to flip it with like 250,000 miles on it. Um, but if you're listening, if you did buy the Freedom Mobile and you repainted it and flipped it, I apologize for saying you're on drugs, but you probably were. But let me know if you sold it. I always thought it would be cool if it was um, in a cool mountain town or whatever, but I think the last owner uh, was in Moab. So who the hell knows what happened to the Freedom Mobile? But if you do know, please hit me up on uh, social media or send me an email. You can support this podcast by checking out the links in our show notes, supporting us on Patreon or by subscribing to The Climbing Zine. And you don't even have to have an address to subscribe to The Climbing Zine. You can choose the dirtbag treatment option, which means we will contact you before each issue comes out. So you can keep a fresh flow of stories coming in. And even if you're using a friend's address, music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich for the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I'm Luke Mihal, coming at you from beautiful Durango, Colorado. <laughs>